Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking with the designer, filmmaker, futurist, and educator, Anab Jain. Anab is the co-founder and director of Superflux, a London-based design studio and lab that mixes client work with self-initiated speculative design projects. She also teaches at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna and has delivered a TED Talk last year on design's role in imagining new futures. I was really interested in this kind of way of thinking and really interested in Superflux's work and this blend of client and speculative projects and was curious to hear from Anab about how these two sides fit together. So we talk about that quite a bit. We also talk about her background in filmmaking and how that influences how she thinks about design. We talk about the role of teaching in her work and design's increasing currency in the world and the disciplinary divisions that uh, that we sometimes push up against that come with that kind of uh, increase in currency. Anab hit on so many of the things that have been on my mind the last few months and it was so fun to pick her brain and hear about how she thinks about all of these things. I, I found this interview incredibly helpful to me and just in my own work and my own practice. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. These memberships uh, help keep the podcast going and help support the cost of running this podcast. And I just really appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Anab Jane. conversation. And I actually thought a really good place to start is to just get right into Superflux and what that is, because it seems from the outside, it seems like a really kind of interesting studio model where it's kind of blending kind of traditional, like kind of consulting or kind of studio design work, but is also, uh, I I don't know, kind of like a lab or, or, uh, you know, a kind of self-initiated projects also. And so I thought, let's just start there. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about Superflux and what that is and the, the type of work that you do there. Um, uh, yeah, so John Arden and I co-founded Superflux almost eight to nine years ago. It's kind of a blur, but I think over the years, what we have done is... Um, have a practice that constantly pushes us to explore um, what we think of as design or perhaps even art in new ways. We have a model where we we know we need to make a living out of this practice. So there is a <laughs> there is a consulting side to our practice that is about. Um, doing commissions or working with clients across sectors, sometimes from public institutions or cultural institutions or occasionally, very occasionally, corporates. Um, and then we have a sort of a practice that is often self-initiated, that we have an idea and an interest or a technology we are exploring and we try and find some kind of grant or funding or commission that would help us realize that research and idea. So... That's been pretty much our model for the last few years. We used to have 
our kind of client-facing work was quite different from our kind of research and self-initiated work, but we've actively tried to get them to come closer and closer together so that it's actually just one set of projects uh, and interests that we pursue. That See, that's you completely set up my next question because that's what I was kind of really interested in because the work of yours that I know, I believe, is all the kind of more self-initiated work. And I was curious, I, I guess this is kind of two questions. I'm curious what the what that client or consultancy work, uh, like what form that takes or what that looks like. Um, and I, yeah. I, I don't mean visually what it looks like, but kind of, you know, the, the, how, how that process evolves. And then yeah. part B of the question, I guess, is how do those fit together, the, the client side work and these kind of self-initiated grant-funded work? How do you see those as, how are they starting to come together? Yeah, um, good question. It's just today we were talking, we were revisiting our lose mission statement. <laughs> yeah. And we really, really are at this point where I suppose the more, you, the deeper you get into a practice and a, and a kind of rigor around the practice, you start asking more and more questions about the purpose of your practice. <laughs> yeah. To what end. And so it's actually a kind of, the more interesting it appears from outside, the more confused we actually are. <laughs> yep. I know exactly what that you're talking about. The, that is the reality. So we are uh, we are in one, in many ways clear but confused. I think the clarity is that merger of commissions and um, the self-initiated work, as I mentioned. So our kind of interest uh, with all our projects is that it must have some kind of uh, um, impact or an outcome in in either the way people think about things or the decisions they make or the strategy they implement or the provocations that then feed into strategies. So there has there must be something that 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 pushes new ways of thinking, that pushes people to think about futures in alternate and different ways and also hopefully creates paths for action. So um, recent kind of climb projects that we've done, we did a project with Mozilla Foundation last year looking at voice-activated uh, devices, mm. artificial using AI. So you already have a lot of these AI devices in the market. You have got Siri and you've got Echo and all that. But uh, we created three different type of devices to get the foundation and their voice AI team to rethink the kind of interactions we might have with machines, to rethink how we um, trust them, how we trust them to even take decisions and uh, carry out actions on our behalf. So that project became a series of films and objects, and that could well have been a self-initiated project, right. but it was not. So in that sense, it's quite satisfying to see a client approach us for the work we want to do. And I mean, I don't want to get too, I don't want to go like too into <laughs> to how your business yeah, yeah. functions, but do, do clients see these self-initiated kind of projects or these grant-funded projects? And are, is that kind of how they're discovering you? And, and are they then coming to you with that in mind, knowing that's the type of work that you do? You know you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 definitely. I think as we, we are finding increasingly that 
there are certain so the organizations are made of people and there are all kinds of people in different organizations and we find that there are actually some really forward-thinking uh, people who want to take risks within organizations who actually become champions of the kind of work we do and try and find ways to bring us in, which is what has happened in the recent past. So we worked on a project with three not-for-profit organizations, Bond, Nesta, and UNDP, okay. and three people from their, those organizations really knew that they wanted to provoke and actually get the organizations to transition from being bureaucratic and highly responsive to being more nimble, more agile and more proactive in how they do international development work. And so we work with them to to kind of help them think through these uh, challenges and, 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 and obviously created something very visceral and experiential because that's what we enjoy doing and right. that's where our sort of skills lie. Um, so, yes, yeah, so recent projects have been very much, um, at least the themes and the concerns that people come to us are things that we are also concerned about and want to address. Right, yeah, and speaking of of kind of the concerns that you want to address and speaking of the skills that you have how does how did this i I want to go back in time how did you get into this is your background in design um yeah i mean before design i actually studied filmmaking and i mean i studied in a design school in india for the national institute of design and i kind of did this it was a it's a bauhaus style school so you do a foundation then i did a bit of communication design and then I majored in filmmaking and I was all set to become a film director. Oh, interesting. And it was, I was doing like 16mm and 35mm <laughs> documentaries and, you know, like this real, it was a real struggle um, to to kind of do it, to be an independent filmmaker in India where there's a real push to what's very kind of mediocre but populist television or you are kind of being third level assistant director to Bollywood directors and I didn't really want to go down any of those routes so I I pursued independent filmmaking for a bit and then went to the RCA in London to do what was then called interaction design. Okay and how much this might be a weird question but I'm I'm interested in that transition or maybe the maybe transition isn't the right word, but that that kind of shift from filmmaking to interaction design, how, how aware, like how familiar were you with what interaction design was or with what even kind of design was? I, I, I know you said you went to a design school, but how, yeah. what, was that a, a, a stark transition or what did that look like for you? Um, not that stark a transition. I mean, I when I was in my second year, uh, we had a big Apple computers donated a lot of computers to our design school, and I had a professor who uh, inspired me and a couple of other friends to apply for this Apple design competition. So yeah, very corporate, but also as a young student exciting to go to Cupertino and present our ideas and we had this kind of handheld device that you could use with a stylus pen and had big icons and (laughs) it would tessellate and form this big screen and so we had all these ideas that we presented there so I already kind of that professor he played a big role um, in kind of bringing this kind of tech and sort of human-centered design thinking into my life but Mm -hmm. I didn't kind of 
kind of fully get into it. I got into filmmaking, obviously, but I think that was there. And then obviously I, I looked at a lot of portfolios, although ironically I was going to apply for communication design at the RCA. And I think a day before I quickly changed my application and went for interaction design Oh, interesting! Uh, because I panicked and went, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> This is not this, and and actually, I think probably the best decision I made. <laughs> Can you? I, that's this is so interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that that kind of crisis? As somebody who, you know, I'm asking this as somebody whose whose BFA is in communication design, and nice. and, and I oh I I want to I want to kind of hopefully connect this to something you said earlier about how Superflux is kind of pushing up against the limits of design or what those yeah, edges yeah. could be. And I feel like that's so much of what my career has become is kind of trying to find those limits or push up against those. What was it about <laughs> communication design that you kind of was like, oh no, maybe this isn't <laughs> interaction design is the thing. Right. Um, so I think, I, well, you know, I was, I had a little computer in, in India and, you know, at that point it wasn't like interaction design wasn't a thing and communication design, I could go and see that they were using filmmaking and they were doing graphic design and they were making animation films. So it was familiar. It was all the disciplines that I was familiar with. Interaction design, I wasn't, but what I was seeing in the portfolios of the students was kind of, deep provocations, I was seeing real playful kind of explorations, a sort of um, strange agency um, that the designers had that somehow was not discipline dependent, but more around ideas and, and collaborations because people came from all different disciplines. So right. I think that was already at the back of my mind. And then I can't remember the exact moment, but I kind of thought, okay, this is familiar, but this is more interesting. Right. So do I play safe or do I go for something that's more risky? And, you know, I kind of, yeah, I was, I was 22. and <laughs> Right. I, yeah, I went for the risky thing. Well, the, I mean, the reason that I ask that is and it comes back to what you're saying about kind of pushing up against those limits of design is what strikes me about superflux and what's so interesting to me about it is that when you look at the work section of your website it has uh everything from and even just the work that you've talked about in this conversation has everything from short films to what i would call you know more kind of traditional communication design projects to things that maybe border art to things like workshops and essays and pieces of writing and and speaking what you mean is we are basically confused (laughs) right well no i mean maybe maybe that's what it is i mean but i'm i'm so drawn to that type of practice that kind of moves between disciplines like that and it sounds like when you were even in school, you were you were attracted to that, or that was something that was interesting to you. And I'm curious, were you aware? I, I guess I guess the question that I'm trying to ask is, were you aware of that even when you were in school that that was something you were interested in, um, or was that a kind of conscious career decision? You know, to to be able to dabble or to move between all of these different things. Uh, no, absolutely not. I think I was actually, I think it, it was more of a moment of frustration because mm. I was so entrenched in filmmaking. We used to watch world cinema every day. We were sat through like Bresson and Godard and Tarkovsky and mm. Korean and Iranian films. It was, I was really entrenched in the discipline of filmmaking. Um, 
But um, I really, it was a real struggle, even though in, in a short period of time, to really make the kind of films you saw as a student or even aspire mm -hmm. to. And I think it was in that moment of frustration that I, I think I chose something different just as, as a kind of opportunity to explore something different without, I don't think I ever had a really planned, defined career trajectory, right. to be honest. I had made some brash decisions in my personal life. I was now making <laughs> seemingly brash decisions in my <laughs> okay. professional life. And I think it was only maybe when I graduated, even when I was, I was really, I had a lot of self-doubt all through university at the Royal College, even couple of months before the degree show, I had called up my parents and told them not to come for the degree show all the way from India, even though they had book flights, but it was going to be terrible. Mm -hmm. And if you ask my professors, they would express similar. So I, I had real moments of doubt. And I think, I think it is only later that I, it's only very much later that I start to kind of have started to feel a little more, a little bit more settled in. But yeah. I also think that, that living with that kind of sense a little bit of sense of doubt and a sense of not knowing can be really helpful in 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 questioning status quo in questioning very tight rigid disciplinary mm -hmm. boundaries in, in pushing yourself to kind of explore things you wouldn't otherwise i think it actually in retrospect has been helpful yeah i mean i what you're saying is is completely resonating with me and even just kind of with things I've been thinking about in my own work in the last couple of weeks. It, it's, it's actually kind of really funny, how, like how closely you're speaking to my own experience right now, because, you know, I, I, I studied graphic design in undergrad. I worked as a designer and it felt very, it was, it's like graphic design was kind of the only thing I've ever wanted to do really. And then I started yeah. working in it and it felt so limiting. Um, mm. It felt uh, in, in the places that I worked before I went to grad school, it felt like, um, like I was just kind of decorating. I was just kind of picking some colors and some typefaces and laying things out in an appealing way and calling it a day. And while that was interesting, I, I felt like I wanted more. There was more to this. Like that wasn't the that wasn't the actual thing that I, I cared about or was interested in. And so that's why I went to grad school. And then yeah. in grad school I started this podcast. And so my and in in grad school I studied graphic design again, but then my kind of final project was an audio project that had <laughs> no visuals. And I started kind of talk I talked about it in the sense that design this word design is much bigger than I thought it was and can yeah. incorporate all of these other things whether it's a podcast or even you know in your case a film that that can all fall under the word design I think and yeah. it's that's that was my way of kind of reconciling it or or talking about it but now as someone who's who just opened up a studio and is trying to blend this type of work with client work, suddenly, you know, that frustration is backwards. Like, oh, wait, what do I call this thing that I'm doing? How do yeah. I, <laughs> you know, everything you're talking about is, is I feel like exactly where I am <laughs> right now. So I don't know <laughs> if there's a question there other than <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. A, it's, it's, it's a journey and I'm quite, yeah, I, I, there's always reality that 
you know that comes in you need to you need to live you need to right. you need to move beyond the surviving you start having a family i have a small right. child you know i don't really have that sense you know it's it's a privilege to have that sense of freedom and chance to explore mm. for a short amount of time but then a lot of other you know people a lot of graduate students have huge loans you know there right. isn't that opportunity to explore and it's that window of exploration is actually shrinking. Right. So I think there is, I, I sense that with recent graduates and with design students, this kind of constant struggle with, with how do we make sense of things in the world at such a young age and how can we make big decisions and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, as, 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 a, as an educator, I'm now seeing myself and many young people, but people who are also struggling with debts and loans and, family pressures and many other things. So it's not an easy thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, can, can we talk about teaching a little bit? Because um, sure. I, I, I also teach a couple of classes in both undergraduate and graduate. And I've been, all of these questions that we're talking about are questions that I feel like I'm wrestling with in the classroom also, because I want to encourage my students to be experimental, to try different things, to find alternative ways to practice design or even specifically graphic design that it doesn't uh you know i came up in a system in a graphic design system that was very commercially driven that you have clients and you you are a problem solver that that solves problems for your clients visually and while i think that's good i i'm it like we were saying i kind of want to open up those borders to um to my students with the realization that there are also um you know, very real constraints mm. in that. Yeah. And yeah. I'm curious how you, do, do you see that kind of tension or how do you balance that in kind of encouraging this kind of uh, inquiry, but also being realistic about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I definitely see it. I mean, I think my students in Austria are very fortunate because they have um, no tuition fees. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, which is, um, to be honest, it means that they don't have these, they still have to work on weekends and they all, you know, they're, they're students and they need, they still need money to live, but they don't have the pressure of the loans. And in turn, the tutors don't have pressure of students having loans. So there is a freedom to explore that I've sensed is a little bit less in some of the American design schools where students really are under the pressure to get jobs as soon as they graduate, which means the student portfolio should have projects that would appeal to potential employers. Right. And that already starts creating very awkward constraints on the kind of uh, direction that the students want to take in terms of exploration. So I think the constant struggle is even uh, is to kind of balance with, especially undergraduate education, um, balance the kind of potential for exploration with the kind of skills that would allow them to get the jobs, but would, but but they have been that the spark has been lit for pushing boundaries or questioning mm. or critical questioning and all of that. So that's the kind of balancing act that I do with my students. And how how do you, something I've been thinking about a lot, and I, I, I feel there was some of that in, in what you were just saying, is is that 
design not only it can design house kind of all of these things but it's also uh let me think the best way to say this i feel like it has a a bigger currency in the world now than it does people know what that word design means even if on a somewhat superficial level it's kind of almost a a buzzword in some (laughs) in in some sense and i'm wondering has that changed how you think either how you think about your own work or even how you 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 work with students in that uh, you know, design is now this thing that people want. And even in, in like, you know, your, your more kind of speculative work, that, yeah. that that idea of speculative design is even a thing that, that companies are, are looking for now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> because I've kind of, we've always been really shy of calling ourselves that because mm. sometimes our work is actually really practical. Like we are designing a, an air pollution sensing kit that is very practical and mm. will be used by people. There's nothing, nothing speculative about it. I mean, in general, I think it's great that different kinds of, that the, the word design is branching out into so many different things and there's an opportunity for people with different interests to to kind of explore those trajectories in new and interesting ways. But I think the tension comes when um, designers get quite territorial about those those disciplines that I find. Because to be honest, till date, nobody has hired us, come to us and hired us because they wanted speculative designers. So nobody hmm. comes to us and says, you guys are speculative designers or you are critical designers. Yes, we want to work with you. They come to us either because they've seen a project or because they want to affect change in a particular way or they want to communicate a message or they want us to explore certain technology. So, yeah, we, you, we have seen that you guys think about technology in interesting ways. We've seen you can prototype, we see you can make interesting things, you can tell a powerful story, hmm. you can uh, help us with features, you can help us with our strategy. So people at the end of the day what we find is that these the this term outside of the design discipline has been used like you know like design thinking and everybody's talking about design thinking and what is that like does that mean the designers didn't think before that (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) um so i am very because i kind of I think it's really important to define the discipline because I think that helps all of us, all of all of the dis- practitioners, agree upon certain things and push the mm-hmm. agenda and mm-hmm. push the push the rigor of the practice. But I think it can also come in the way of actually pushing the practice because you kind of go, no, this is it, and this is not interaction design, and this is interaction design, and but this is art, and right. I kind of I agree that yes, it's problematic, but I think it's chewy in its problematicness because it means that you can um, take and borrow and collaborate with disciplines and you can produce something that's compelling and meaningful without falling into the trap of oh no we can't do this because this is not interaction design yeah i (laughs) i yes i (laughs) I agree with everything. I have like five different things going through my head right now that I want to try to. Um, I I think you're exactly right, and it's reminded me. I recently talked to um, to the design theorist uh, Cameron Tonkinwise. Do you know him? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He wrote this great essay a couple of years ago called "Just 
it was called just design and there's a line in there it's that i i assign this essay to all of my students i think about this essay all the time and and you were kind of just articulating it where he he basically says any design that is not speculative fictional critical you know and he goes through all these things is inadequate designing and he kind of goes on to say that oh really all design is design thinking is speculative in some sense starts as a fiction should have some sort of critical that that's kind of part of the mandate of the designer and Mm. and i i think that's kind of what you're talking about when you're talking about these kind of borders and these territories and especially things like like critical design that that then there is some design that is not critical or design thinking there's some type of design that is not thinking or is not thoughtful and 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 that that's something that I'm really interested in, and and I I kind of agree with you. And you know I'm I feel like often these words, as they start to gain currency, um, they also start to lose some of their meaning, or to to the part that gets copied, or the part that starts to move, is a more superficial version of the thing and so design thinking which you brought up comes up on the podcast a lot as a a kind of thing that started as kind of systemizing the design process or kind of using design process to get to kind of non-traditional ways and has sort of devolved into post-it notes and kind of this like creativity thing and I'm I guess the question, what I'm kind of struggling to get to is, um, do you have thoughts on kind of that process or those, you know, these terms that can be helpful, whether it's speculative design or critical design or design thinking or or whatever, that they also are starting to kind of lose their meaning or, or, you know, become visual tropes? in a way, like especially critical design and graphic design has start, started to kind of gain a certain aesthetic. And that if you just make something that looks a certain way, you can call it critical, even if there's kind of nothing behind it. Do you know what, you know what I'm trying to, mm-hmm. trying to say? Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, for, a, for, a, for, for us as, as practitioners, I think these are useful in terms of how, how we approach a project. So I think for us, I think it gets problematic when speculative design becomes a toolkit and a process mm-hmm. that is packaged mm-hmm. and and sold as a process. And this cookie cutter method, because that's one thing that, if there's one thing that we have learned in our practice is that there isn't a cookie cutter method for this kind of practice and that there isn't one right. specific toolkit that you can just apply to any brief or any theme or any concern and whip out solutions because things are complex when you start asking questions, you, you lots of more things get unpacked and you might find that we are applying processes from futures techniques and foresight techniques and interaction design uh, and ethnography and anthropology and social science. All of those things are available in our toolkits to use and apply and explore. So I kind of find that one package doesn't work. Um, in terms of critical design, I think of it more as the critical lens with which you, you are right. practice and the critical lens you apply to a project when you are exploring 
the theme or the concern when you when you are raising questions the critical questions you raise the critical lens through which you think about it is hugely powerful in the direction the project goes so that's my own personal interpretation of how i want to apply that term you, you you mentioned that when a client comes to you they don't say we want speculative design or we want critical design do they have do they have a, a deliverable or a product I, I don't mean for this question to be so reductive but do they know you know does a client know yeah. what they want when they come to you or what yeah. what's that kind of process look like I mean you quite often they do and then quite often quite quickly that changes <laughs> yeah um, which is part of any design project not specifically ours but right. quite often the, the designers end up rewriting the brief. Right. Um, quite often, uh, people have come to us because they've seen an experience or an installation that we did and said, "Oh, we really loved that," and you know, we thought it was very powerful, blah, and you know, or "Oh, we would like you to create in this instance with these three NGOs um, a fictional international development organization to show people how it things could be different," or "We would like you to explore this technology." So. People come to us with very specific um, kind of briefs because that's what they've got funding from internally. Right. So these things are not divorced from how an organization is thinking and working at that time. And, you know, um, somebody has decided something's come up and they must think about this differently or there's competition or there's an event or there's, you know, mm -hmm. there are things that happen or that there are some people within the organization who are actually on the path to thinking ahead and long term and want to invest in that. So I think things are so connected that, but by and large, it's always been because of those connected things that people come to us, not just uh, uh, a desire. And, and and yes, maybe there is a desire to explore speculative design, but that that hasn't been the only reason, I'd say. Right, and then so sometimes you know they'll they'll come to you with a question or a thing that they're working on, and through your process, you're like, this yeah. is a film, or this is a website, or this is a whatever. Yeah. kind of that I mean, kind yeah, of emerges very much. So I think the outcome actually really often emerges at the end. I mean, we have had instances where people have come to us and they want to film because they know that that's going to be the piece that mm -hmm. fits into their scheme of things. But but quite often, we prefer people to not come with the deliverables straight right. away. And we prefer that they discover not just A, but a set of deliverables or actionable things or outcomes that could be far more rewarding and surprising than if they had stuck to the original Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Has your film? Do you think your background in film has affected? I'm always interested. The reason I, I'm asking this is I'm always interested in people who come from other backgrounds and into design. Um, probably because that's something that I don't have. Um, does do do you think studying film and immersing yourself in that world? Uh, has changed has maybe affected how you approach design or how you think about design or your process has any of that education yeah. seeped into your work now yeah definitely i mean it's really interesting because i think i've only acknowledged that recently mm -hmm. because for a long while we weren't making that many films and we were i was almost pushing against that previous 
life of mine because now I'm yeah. on a different journey and now I should use I should do more programming and coding and use electronics and make right. objects and and do everything that um, is sort of seems to be the thing that this discipline is all about and only um, in the last few years I've acknowledged the fact that no some of my strengths and interests are in filmmaking and mm. John who comes from who I work very closely with so all of the work we do is really a, 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 a total joint effort. Joint comes from, John comes from fine art background as well, oh, in sculpture. And so he's the one who really enjoys the tangible making aspects of it, while I really enjoy the, the kind of the narrative and the more fictional and the more sort of filmic aspects of our work. And so I suppose there is a happy marriage there in, right. in the kind of projects that come out. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I didn't realize I actually think that kind of split in interest and split in skill it, it, in a weird way kind of explains so much of, of the questions that I've been asking. I wish we got to that yeah. that part earlier. Yeah, me too. I mean, either way, um, like I said, it's never been one like yeah for for a recent project john built all these with colleagues in the studio uh who were also product designers and makers these kind of food computers that you know i would have completely struggled to build but i could envision them i could explore the various aspects of them i could imagine a world where we live with them i could imagine the experience of visitors who saw them and you know so it's a it's a it's a real collaborative joint effort and i think there are pros and cons of it but um i think john has pushed me to think more filmically because that's my background and because i enjoy that and he thoroughly enjoys the hands-on and the technological exploration of things yeah, I, I love that. I have just a couple quick questions just to wrap it sure. up. These are questions that I ask yeah. everybody. Um, you know, this podcast kind of started with an interest in design criticism and specifically kind of how we talk about design or kind of what uh, what are the kind of uh, components of the contemporary design discourse. And I'm curious, I'm going to ask you this in two ways. Um, what are the kind of subjects or topics that you've been thinking about lately? Uh, in your own work and then kind of secondarily are there topics or thing or subjects that you think designer that are kind of important and are kind of pressing designers today that they should be thinking about wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah I saved the hard questions for the end <laughs> Um, I mean, I think um, there are quite a few different things we're thinking about at the minute. Um, one really meaty and very difficult project we're working on is really about is exploring the current phenomenon, if you like, around culture wars, identity politics, oh, nonlinear information warfare. And we are basically looking at this phenomenon of ideological entrenchment um, leading to conflict and how I algorithmically mon uh, mediated networks are kind of proliferating that sense of entrenchment. And um, we are uh, exploring what a, what a sort of perhaps even a post-narrative world might look like. Oh, interesting. Or we are trying to explore sort of utopic politics of future utopic politics because there's such a lot of dystopia around at the minute mm -hmm. so that's just that kind of quite a, like i so said very and very difficult to get ahead around because it's very conceptual and it's so yeah. 
intangible. Um, in terms of what designers should be thinking about, I think I think this is something that I am thinking about a lot in terms of what is the what does meaningful change look like for mm. me as a designer? How can I I can how can I play a role in in, in, in creating meaningful change in a very specific way in the work I do or, or change the nature of my work. And I think, I think designers um, kind of have a responsibility and commitment to understanding the effect and the sort of right. consequences of their work. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I feel that if more designers kind of question the work they do in, or, or position placed it within a larger context um i think that would really help the discipline yes yeah i agree with that 100 percent. we are speaking the same same language <laughs> uh same language there that's part of kind of what i hope you know these conversations and this podcast is kind of one of the goals is to try to encourage more of that my last question uh and again this is a question that i ask everybody um if you you know, if someone's listening to this and was kind of really drawn to the type of work that you do and the, the things we've been talking about, are there any books or authors or writers or, or designers who have kind of influenced you that you would you would give someone as a, a reading list of, you know, if these subjects interest you, you have to read this person or this book? <laughs> Gosh, um... <laughs> I, I'm reading so many, I've been reading so many different, like, really diverse things. So it's hard to kind of <laughs> one consistent list, but I am. So I've been reading uh, people like Keller Esterling. Oh, yeah. I just interviewed and, her. Uh, oh, she. Yeah, really? Yeah, <laughs> I love her so much. <laughs> so she's writes in a very difficult way and it's very it's quite hard to penetrate but it's really key concepts around um, uh, you know she compares design in a way to the game of pool and how you're constantly opening up options and you know as an instrument and you know these are all really really fascinating ways of thinking about design uh, I read I, I have read uh, like anthropologists like obviously uh, Anna Singh uh, who, who, who writes beautifully like what I love about a lot of anthropologists is how they think about material culture it's such poetic and yeah powerful ways um, bringing us really upfront and close with the kind of material realities life around us that we are so kind of far removed from often mm -hmm. I um, obviously um, James C. Scott is a huge influence oh, yeah. uh, uh, seeing like a state to cheers by anarchism which I read recently. Um, I'm recently reading a book by Simone de Boer called The Ethics of Ambiguity, which is, again, really hard, but <laughs> I really enjoy it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so this is kind of a really, I'm just picking a few here. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a great, that's a great <laughs> list and a great way to kind of sum, sum up all of this. This this conversation was so fun and so interesting to me. I'm a big fan of your work and kind of just, yeah. you know, even just kind of talking to you, the way you think about these things, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just a big fan of. I just really, really enjoy and admire. And so thank you so much for your time thank and for you. this conversation. This was so fun for me.
Likewise, thank you. Um, you know, I kind of, kind of, these conversations help us reflect about our practice in ways that we don't otherwise get the time to. So yeah, thank you for inviting me. Good, then I've done my job too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. <laughs> this episode was recorded on June 19th, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.